Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the fifth week of our series on Matthew 12 called Not My Messiah. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. We've uh, been in a study of the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and, and specifically, we're really in Matthew chapter 12, and we're seeing the, the big theme throughout Matthew chapter 12 is you have Jesus, who clearly is the Messiah. There's evidence, and, and you have people responding, and yet, yet you have some of the religious leaders who are looking at the evidence, and, and they're saying, well, if he's the Messiah, he's not my Messiah. He's, he's not the Messiah I expect. He's, and there's a rejection, not because they can't see the truth, but because they don't want to see the truth, because, it, because Jesus doesn't conform with their expectations, their desires. And, and that's what we're going to see play out this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'd, we invite you to look, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. This morning, we're going to look at verses 38 through 42, a shorter passage. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you, and we invite you to use that. It's on pages 8, 17 and 818. And, uh, and I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open throughout our time, because all the, the main points always come from the scripture. We, I try to, to just expound on what's there. And, uh, and if you have your Bible open, it helps you to see where it comes from. But let me start by reading the passage we're going to look at this morning. Matthew 12, starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three uh, days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men in Benin will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came to the ends, from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be here and to come and to worship. And Father, to just disengage from the busyness of life and to, to engage in the worship and reflection on you. I thank you for what you're doing. Father, I pray now your blessing that you would meet us through your spirit in this time. Father, I acknowledge that this is not about my words, my wisdom, but Father, I just seek to be faithful to your words. And I pray that your Holy Spirit speak through me and in spite of me. And Father, I pray that each one of us would be open to your spirit in our own lives, to hear the truth and respond to the truth that you may have for us this morning. I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you an example of the kind of discussion that sometimes my wife and I have. I, some, some of you might be able to relate to it. Uh, there are times that I may have an idea to do something and say, for example, I might say, hey, you know, let's go for a bike ride this afternoon. And, and she responds, you know, I'd love to, but you know, the weather is, it's, it's might, might rain. And so I said, well, pull up the weather channel and I say, hey, they've changed the forecast. It looks like it's supposed to be beautiful all day. Well, and then she says, well, but uh, Tiffany said that you know, her daughter, she might come at four o'clock. And, and, uh, and I said, well, you know, if we leave early, we could probably be back at 4.30 or five. I'll just call Tiffany and tell her to come at five. And, and then she says, well, but, but I need to be back earlier to cook dinner. And so I said, well, we could just cook a hamburger. You know, look, real, I, I'll even cook. You don't even have to worry about that. No problem. And then there's another, another thing and another, and, and, you know, I'm sitting there saying, okay, it seems like you really don't want to go. 
you know, you're giving me reasons, but they seem to be excuses. And do you really want to go? And she says, no, I don't want to go. Well, why didn't you just tell me that in the beginning? I mean, kind of like, you know, I think a lot of you relate to that. And it's almost like sometimes we have this thing, we don't want to disagree with each other. We don't want to confront the other person. So we kind of go along and, but then make excuses, but their excuses are disguised, disguised as reasons. Now, I think, again, we can relate to that in marriage or in friendship, and, and hopefully it's the kind of thing that we usually laugh about because when we're talking about issues about going on a bike ride or where we're going for dinner, those things really aren't that important. But what happens when we do that on issues of, of importance, of supreme importance? So, for example, I think that it's something that people often do when we talk about questions of God. Is there a God? Do I believe in Jesus? People will make all kinds of logical sounding arguments about, well, this is why I don't believe in, in God. This is why I don't believe in Jesus. And, and, but what I find is oftentimes I'll, I'll talk to that person. They'll say, well, here's my problem. I'll answer that problem. Well, here's another problem and here's another problem. And I'm like, it doesn't matter how many, how many things that I answer. It seems like you're never getting closer. And the problem is, is that what you're telling me are reasons are really just excuses. Well, that's what's going on here in Matthew chapter 12 as we see this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, what we see is in Matthew 12, 12, 38, we see that these scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders of Jesus' day, come up to Jesus and they say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, by itself, in isolation, out of the context of the story, that seems to be an incredibly reasonable request. Jesus has made some, you know, some incredible claims and they're coming to him and they're saying, okay, Jesus, uh, if you're making these claims, we want to see some evidence. We want to see some kind of evidence that, that backs up the claims. But what we're going to see is when we look at the whole context of the surrounding verses, at the story of what happened right before this, these questions really are not an honest question of saying, help us to discover the truth, Jesus. What they really are is they're just a reason that's, hiding an excuse that's trying to give them a reason, you know, an excuse to reject Jesus. You see, ultimately they're asking a question, you know, give us a sign. But there's, there's an underlying question that's behind what they're asking. And it's something that's, that's ultimately not driving their question, it's driving their rejection of Jesus. It's a question that people still ask today. This underlying question is, who is God? What kind of God do you want? And again, this is something that people still ask that still struggle and ultimately often drives the rejection of Jesus. Do you want a God that you can control? Do you want a God that conforms to you in your desires, a God that, that is going to respond to your demands? If you believe in God, does it have to be that kind of God? Or do you want a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and that is your creator and is your designer and knows more than you do? to whom he's not going to respond and conform to you and your opinions, but he calls you to conform to him and his truth. Do you want a God that is, that is greater than you, that works outside of your control? Or do you want a God that, that you can control? That you can, in a sense, tell him what you expect him to do and he's going to respond. See, that's the big issue that is behind this. It's what was facing the religious leaders of Jesus' day and it's the issue behind the confrontation we're seeing here. It's the issue, again, that is behind many of the people who reject Jesus. That's the question. That's the, it's not the reason, it's the excuse. So let's dive into the study. And 
And let's pick it up in verse 38. And, and you see again, the religious leaders approach Jesus with this seemingly simple request. Some of them come and they ask him, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They're asking for an evidence that he was from God. And, and Jesus gives them what seems to be a kind of really harsh rebuking response. Verse 39, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now that's really harsh. Again, when they come and, and they ask for this and he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Well, who is it that asks for the sign? Those religious leaders. So he's not just talking about, well, a group out there, he's talking directly to them, you know, speaking, you know, turning around to them. And, and, and most of us, when we think of Jesus, we think of him being very patient, very gracious, very loving. And, uh, and then I read this and, it, and it's like, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that I would expect to hear. It's not the response that I would expect. Let me, let me put it a different way. Let me make it personal. Let's say I'm in a public setting and we're having a discussion with people about issues of faith. And you're there with me and someone comes up and they, they say, well, you're making these claims. Well, give me some evidence behind the claims. And I turn and look at the person and said, you've got to be an evil, adulterous person to ask a question like that. What would you think? I mean, you're, you're probably sitting back and saying, whoa, what's wrong with you? You know, somebody didn't have their coffee this morning. I mean, it's coming, you know, so you, say, well, you know, that, that seems offensive. And, and you might be bothered because in part you're thinking, that's, that's not a very Christ-like response. And, and you would be right. You know, that's not a very Christ-like response, except we've got to deal with the fact that here we are in this passage and that's exactly the response that Jesus gives. So we have to ask, why did Jesus respond so harshly? Why does he respond here? You know, we re expect him to be full of grace and patience and love. And is, is he being unchristlike in his response? It almost seems that way. Now, I will admit that this is somewhat unusual for Jesus to respond this way. But if you study actually the whole of the Gospels, what you find is it isn't the only place. What you find is that Jesus actually speaks this way numerous times. Now, usually what will happen, in fact, what's significant is that if you look at him and he's speaking to someone who knows that they're a sinner, someone who's aware of their spiritual need, Jesus will always speak with the, to that person with grace and compassion and patience and great love. He never speaks harsh words of condemnation to people who are already aware of their spiritual need. He always speaks words of invitation to grace. But on the other hand, there are numerous times that he interacts with people who are self-righteous, who are talking to Jesus and they're not saying, how do I learn from you? They're, but they're basically taking a self-righteous, how do I instruct you? I've got to tell you. And when he speaks to that, so, that self-righteous group, he numerous times will speak this kind of harsh confrontation. And what we need to realize is that his purpose isn't to condemn, but it's to break through this hard shell of self-righteousness trying to get them to become aware of a spiritual need because he wants to see the, for them to see their need so he can invite them to grace. Now, when we look at this, what we need to realize, that's what's going on. Now, to, to see the whole picture, we need to step back as in, and remember that you know, we just read a couple of verses out of context, but they're part of a bigger story. And so we need to step back and to remember the context of what God had just done and and what's in that story? See, 
the religious leaders have come up to Jesus, they're asking for a sign, but it was in response to something that had happened a few minutes beforehand, literally a few minutes, a few verses in our text, but a few minutes in this whole interaction. And so let's take a minute and go back to that. So I'm gonna go back to verse 22 and remind you of this miracle that had just been done. Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. There's a demon oppressed man, he's blind and mute, and, and he's brought to Jesus, and Jesus does an amazing miracle and heals him both spiritually and physically. He proves his spiritual power by healing him from his demon oppression and his physical power by healing him so that he can see and he can speak. And it's an amazing thing. And, and it tells us in the next verse that most of the people look at that and they say, that's the power of God. And they conclude, if it's the power of God, he, Jesus must be of God. He must be the Messiah. And all the people were amazed and said, that, can this be the son of David? And that's a, a term referring to the Messiah. But not everyone read it that way. Now there's evidence that he is the Messiah, but the religious leaders are saying, that's not my Messiah. That's not the Messiah I want. And so they, because they don't like Jesus, they don't like his ministry, they don't want to give him credit. They don't want to admit that this is of God. So they turn around and reinterpret it. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that this man casts out demons. Basically, it's, you know, no, it's not from God, it's from Satan. And then Jesus in verses 25 through 29 confronts them and shows how illogical that argument is. Basically, he's saying, you know, if you're saying that I'm doing this by the power of Satan, Satan's doing battle against himself. You're saying that Satan sent demons here, then sent me here so that I could cast out the demons that he put in his man. That's illogical. It makes absolutely no sense. And then he continues in verse 28, and he says, if it is by the, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he indeed may plunder his house. And he's saying, and I did it by the power of God. I'm the strong man. And he's claiming here that, yes, Satan is powerful, but I'm more powerful than him. He's claiming the power of God here. And he's saying, if I did it by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, and I'm bringing that kingdom. Now, that's the context. He makes this incredible claim He's, he's answered the arguments so that they can't argue that this is of Satan, but they still don't like it. And that's the context where we have them coming in verse 38 and saying, teacher, give us a sign. And, and again, now, if you think about the context, here's what's happening. He's healed this demon-oppressed man. He's, he's, he's healed him. He's, you know, cast out the demon. He's healed him so he can see and speak. And, and the question is, by how, whose power are you doing this? And then we have the religious leaders who are doubting Jesus. They're saying, well, okay, you've already answered our arguments, but if you really want to prove you're of God, then give us a sign. Now think about it. I'm thinking, there's a guy right here. You know, how about the guy he just healed? I mean, he just did a sign. He just did a miracle. He just gave evidence that this is of God. And you're sitting there saying, yeah, okay, you did that one. We'll give us another one. Now what's going on here? It's not only that, but Jesus had done all hundreds of miracles and they knew about this, that he'd, you know, cause the blind to see, he will cause the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, he freed the oppressed. And when you realize that, you realize they don't want a sign. They had received plenty of signs. What they wanted is a sign of their choosing. They wanted a God that they can control. They're basically saying, if you are really God, then prove your power by doing the things that we tell you to do because he had done all kinds of things. 
But there's, they're wanting, they're assigned, do this sign that we choose because we don't just want a powerful God, we want a powerful God whom we can control. That's why Jesus responds in verse 39 with this harsh confrontation, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. He's saying, you don't really want a sign. You know, your heart are, is evil because you're trying to find a God that you can control. And the request revealed the evil intent. And Jesus is trying to, in a sense, shake their cage to, to get them to say, that's not a reason, that's an excuse. So again, if they wanted a sign that gave evidence, there were plenty of that, but they, they wanted a God who would allow them to maintain control. Now, Jesus' response to them is not, I'm not going to give you any evidence. You know, you just got to believe it and there's no evidence to truthfulness of my claim. That's not what he says. He doesn't call us or tell us, don't seek evidence. That's not what he says. It's actually inconsistent. The Bible calls us to seek evidence. But what he's confronting is that they were ignoring the evidence that was right in front of them. Now, then you say, okay, then what evidence do we have? Because we may look at this and we can say, well, that's easy for them. They have this guy that was healed. He's right there. And I'm sitting there saying, well, how do I know that? How can I believe Jesus? I don't, I don't see him healing people like that. I don't, we don't get to see that. When he says, okay, well, I'm going to give you the ultimate sign. When it says this generation, it's talking about everyone from then until Jesus returns. And we all have the ultimate sign, the ultimate sign of the resurrection. That's the ultimate sign, the ultimate evidence. Look at verse 39 and 40. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, here's what's going on. He's talking about the sign of Jonah. And for, you know, it's the greatest proof of all time. And it's speaking about the prophet Jonah, who he has a book in the Old Testament, you know, back in, you know, like in the middle of the Old Testament, where it tells its story. And this prophet Jonah had been called by God to go to the, you know, the pagan city of Nineveh, to kind of a really wicked city, and to preach a message of repentance. Repent or, you know, or God's going to judge you. And, and at first, Jonah refused. He said, I don't want to go. They're an evil people. And so he tried to run away from God. But you couldn't run away from God. He couldn't. And God got a hold of him. And eventually, you know, I won't tell the whole story, but he ended up getting thrown into a sea, getting swallowed by some kind of great fish, and then after three days of being in the belly of that fish, he repented, surrendered to God. The fish spit him out. He ended up going in to Nineveh and doing the, the ministry that God had called him to. And so Jesus is referring to this symbolic death, burial, and resurrection of Jonah. And, and when, when he was symbolically, in a sense, you know, dead, where he's thrown into the sea, he's buried, he's entombed into the fish, where he comes alive again when he's delivered up alive from the fish, and he's saying that symbolic experience was literally fulfilled, would be fulfilled in Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection. The fact that he would die for our sins, be buried in the grave, and then after three days be raised again. That's what it's clear in verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, anyone who wants sign and evidence, you say, there is no greater sign, there is no greater evidence that has ever been done in the history of mankind than this. And if you're, well, I don't know, believe about Jesus. Well, okay, well, let's look at this one piece of evidence because it wraps it up. The whole of Christian, you know, the whole Christian faith is built upon the claim of this historical event. It's not a religious claim. It's a claim of something that happened in human history. And because it happened in history, 
it can be proven or disproven. A lot of people will claim that Christianity, like, you know, all religions make religious claims and, and the Christian claims are just the same. Well, they're not. You see, all other religions will make these spiritual claims about these spiritual events that the religious leader say happen, but, but they can't be evaluated because it was a private event. Christianity is the only thing where it says the foundation, foundational truths are based on historical events that we can test. So for example, let's take Islam for an example. It's built on the claim that Muhammad received revelations from God through the, prophet, or through the angel Gabriel. Now there's no way to test that. All we have is his word that this happened and that's how he got the Quran and wrote this all out. There's no way to prove it or to disprove it. We have the claims of one man and the whole faith raises or falls on the claims of that one man, subjective claims. Or take uh, um, Mormonism. The whole faith is built on this claim that an angel appeared to Joseph Smith and showed him these magical golden plates and gave him these magical glasses where he looked at these golden plates through these magical glasses and it allowed him to translate this Egypt, Egyptian into English. And after he did that, that's where the Book of Mormon came. But after he translated it, the angel took the, the, the plates and the magic glasses back so no one can see him. There's no way to verify it. All you have is a claim of one man. There's no way to test, to, to prove whether it happened or it didn't happen. They're completely based on the word of the founder. Now compare that and contrast that with Christianity. Christianity is radically different. It's not just a spiritual claim of I had this experience with God or I had this vision. No, it's, it's, it's clear to put it in the context of history. And Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, is clear to say it's all a historical event on which it all rises and falls. Look what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. This is what's first importance. This is what's the foundation of the faith that everything in the Christian faith is built on. That Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Scriptures prophesied it, but then it happened. It's a historical event, and he's clear on that. And then he continues, not because it happened in history, we can test it. Why? Because history is a matter of eyewitnesses, and it can be evaluated. So he continues, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And, and this is only a part of what's there in Corinthians. And basically he's saying that, that there's evidence. This was, again, just not the religious experience of one person. It was 500 people at once. You know, 500 people at once don't have the same dream. They don't have the same, you know, this is something that was real. And not only that, if you think about it, from the very beginning, Christians were persecuted. They were opposed. And you have all these people that want to destroy the Christian faith. All they had to do is to go find the body. They had to go to the tomb, say, here's the body, here he is, and the and Christian faith is dead. No one can do that. Why? Because the body was not there. The grave was empty. This was a real historical fact. Now, is there still a need for faith? Yes. Because faith not only is believing in our mind, but then it's acting on that belief. It's going... You know, it's consistent with logic, but then it goes beyond logic and believes that which we cannot see. But biblical faith is of a different quality than the faith of other religions. So these other religions say, well, we said this happened, just close your eyes and trust us. There's no evidence. You know, you just got to trust that this one person, what they said is true. 
It's, it's a blind faith, closing your eyes. Christian faith, the Bible's really clear in saying, you know, here's all the evidence. And, 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 and there's a faith that goes beyond the evidence, but it's a, a faith that is with our eyes open, is a faith that is consistent with reason. Now, if I had time, we could spend a ton of time not only going through the rest of 1 Corinthians, but all the evidences, all the arguments. We could spend literally weeks on this. Um, let me give you a couple things just as, as kind of resources because we don't have time to do that. One is from a couple people who have studied this issue and, and look at what their conclusions are. These are not religious scholars, these are historians. Thomas Arnold is a uh, professor of modern history at Oxford University. Here's what he said. I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidences of those who have written about them. And I know of no other one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that, that Christ died and rose again from the dead. If you study it, as history, as a fair inquirer, there is more evidence towards the resurrection of Jesus than any other event in human history. Another uh, scholar, uh, Dr. Paul Meyer, professor at ancient history at Western Michigan University says this, if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, if it is, in, it is indeed justifiable according to the canons of historical research to conclude that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter, and no shred of evidence has yet been discovered in literally source, epigraphy, or archaeology that would disprove this statement. Again, it's strong statements. Now, if you're there and you say, oh, I want to go deeper with this, I understand it. Again, a couple resources that I would recommend. One, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, you know, really gets into this. Another great book that really kind of digs deep and says, okay, how do we almost deal with this like if you were a detective and looking at the evidence? Cold Crash Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. And I think we have both of these books in our church library, but if you want to go deeper, they're there. Now, I know that some people will say, well, I have doubts. And, but here's, if you're there, if you have doubts, have you ever really looked at the evidence? And I've talked to people that would say, I don't believe the evidence. Is, have you ever looked at it? And if you've never looked at it, and if you tell me that you don't believe because you have doubts, I'm going to tell you you're not being intellectually honest. You're giving me a reason, but it's not a reason, it's an excuse. And what I believe is that if you really honestly assess the claims of Christianity, if you, if you come up to a different conclusion, that's fine. Hey, but it's, I'm, and I'd be glad to, to research that with you. But if you look at it, I think that you're going to have to conclude that the evidence, this is the ultimate proof in all of human history of any claim of truth. So that's why when we go back and we see him saying that evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given. To, you know, he's speaking not only to them, but to us and saying, okay, there's all, all times people are going to look at that and say, well, here's why I don't believe. Here's why I don't believe. And basically, is it a reason or is it an excuse? Is it an excuse because I don't want to believe. I don't want this to be the God that I don't, I don't like him. And, and we can look at this and we can say we have evidence, but... A lot of times we're ignoring the evidence that is right in front of us. Now, why is that? Why do we reject him? Because again, let's go back to what we're seeing here. Is, is what we, we kind of touched on a moment ago. They're denying the evidence because this request for evidence really wasn't a request for evidence. It was, a, it was an excuse. They were ignoring a miracle that had just been there because their demand, there was a demand behind the request. 
again, Jesus had just done this miracle. He just answered all the you know, objections. And, um, and in the same way today, he gives us all the evidence for the resurrection. It's all there. And, uh, but what does he tell them? You know, if the spirit of, if it's by the spirit of God, I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is upon you. If this is true, then I am of God and you've got to answer to me. If the resurrection really happened, then he is of God and we have to answer to him. Now, the question is, will we accept him or reject him? And the problem for the religious leaders of that day, as it is for many of our day, is that we're asking for a sign because we don't like the signs that we already have because we don't like the answer. And basically, again, what are they doing? They're coming to Jesus and they're not saying, give us evidence because we don't have enough. They're saying, give us our evidence. Do the miracle that we want you to do. They're saying, if you're going to be God, you've got to be a God that answers to us. And what was the issue for their day? For their day, what they were looking at is they're saying, hey, the Romans are in charge here. And, and we don't want to be the Romans in charge. So do the sign, get rid of the Romans, put us in charge politically. And if you put us in charge politically and leave us in control, hey, then we'll follow you when you follow us. See, they were not asking for a sign. They said it, but they had the sign this guy had been healed. They had all this evidence that was right there. We have the sign of the resurrection. We have this evidence. They weren't asking for a sign, but they were demanding that God do their sign. That God, you know, get rid of the Romans. God, do the things that I want. Put, basically what they're saying is, if you're God, then you have to prove it by making me God. By submitting your will to my will, by answering my prayer, by performing the way that I expect you to do so. See, they wanted Jesus to conform to their agenda. And we still do that today. You know, we demand that Jesus perform. In fact, you know, I, people, I talk to people all the time that will tell me, yeah, I was a Christian for a while and I dropped out of church or I'm just not close with God. And, and some of you might be here and it's like, man, I just, I just really want, why? Well, because I had this time that I had this need and I prayed for God to do this. I prayed for God to heal this person, to provide this. I really wanted this and I prayed and I prayed and it didn't happen. And how can I believe in God when it didn't happen? And so I just turned my back on God. Do you see what you're doing? You're doing the exact same thing that these religious leaders did. God, give me, I'll, this is the sign you have to do. Yeah, you got the resurrection, but you didn't answer my prayer. You didn't give me that job. You didn't heal that relationship. So if you're not gonna conform to me, why should I believe in you? It's the same thing. My friends, I think that there may be some people that's, that's your issue. You're distant from God. You're having a hard time believing, not because there's not evidence, but because he's not performing for you. And you want a God that is going to conform for, to you and do what you want and leave you in charge? Or are you willing to say, I'm, I'm going to embrace God for who he is, who calls me to conform to him? Or you know where I see it play out often today? People say, you know, no, God, if you believe, I'll, I'll do this. Or more common, God, if, if I believe in you, you have to accept me the way I am. You have to accept and approve my choices. You know, I can't go to a church where they don't kind of, God doesn't affirm the lifestyle that I've chosen. And so God has to conform to me. I have to be in charge and God has to conform. And basically we're demanding again, God, if you didn't heal my prayer, I can't believe. If you don't affirm my lifestyle, if you don't totally affirm, you know, what I choose to do, I'm going to reject you as God. And we're basically saying, I want a God who leaves me in charge. But that's the essence of sin. You see, the essence of sin is basically saying, how do I reject you as God, as authority? 
And the ultimate thing of, of, of confession is, God, I agree with you that that's wrong. And ultimately coming to God and saying, God, I ask you to forgive me of that sin. And I want you to be the authority in my life. I accept you not only as all powerful, but as God in my life. See, that's really, he's getting into what's then the right response to God and his word. And, and this will be real brief, but you see this in verses 30, 41 and 42. He talks about the people of Nineveh and the queen of the south. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And he's, he's basically saying, okay, these people of Nineveh, these really terrible people, they're better than you. And were they good people? They were terrible people. They did terrible things. And that's why God sent them Jonah and called them to repent which tells us that God offers grace to each one of us no matter where we're at. It's not a matter of our goodness or our performance. No, but what happened is they heard a message they didn't like. The message was, you're sinning, you're evil, repent or God's gonna destroy you. And they heard that, that was not a, you know, a, a, a friendly message, a you know, seeker-sensitive message. That was stepping on toes big time. They didn't like it, but they're like, yeah, that's from God. It's right. And they repented. They responded not by saying God has to conform to us, but God's confronting us and we have to conform to him. Or then you have the queen of the south in verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. That's speaking about the queen of Sheba in First Kings 10. And we're told that, you know, that she traveled from, you know, basically she, she was in Yemen, she was south in Saudi Arabia, traveled hundreds of miles across the desert to hear about Solomon. And we're told that, in, in, uh, that she came to test Solomon with hard questions. And basically, okay, I've heard this about you and she's testing. I want you to realize that when you read everything that's going on here, she's not just asking about his wisdom, she's claiming, we're gonna see that he's saying, here's my wisdom, here's my wealth, here's my prosperity because it's of God. And her questions were about God. And then we're told in verse five that there was no more breath in her. So basically she's saying, okay, I don't have any more questions. You've answered them all. Because she's not giving excuses. She's saying, I'm asking questions and then I'm learning. And as I'm learning, I'm saying, okay, you've answered them. And then in verse nine, we're told her ultimate response is she blessed the Lord. She blessed Yahweh. She blessed, she learned about God and she blessed him. She, in a sense, repented. And, and, and so Jesus is saying, okay, well, you know, you're the religious people, but the queen of Sheba, you're gonna, you know, she's gonna condemn you at the end. Why? Because she came all the way to ask questions, not to prove Solomon wrong, but to learn and to listen. And when she learned and listened, she was convinced by that. And she said, okay, no, I, I, I confess. I, blessed be the Lord your God. That's the God that I wanna follow. And there was a verbal confession, a life change. And the question is, the right response, have we done that? It's, it's ultimately belief. And what is belief? It's not just intellectual. It's a choice and an act of the will. It's what I know to be true, but I can have two people that look at that and say, we hear the religious leaders, here's the sign right in front of them. And they're like, I don't want to believe it. And they rejected what was obvious because they made a choice to say, I don't want that kind of God. I want a God I can control, not a God who's bigger than me. And likewise for us, each one of us, we've got to look at that's what God calls us to, to believe. And there's evidence there, but the ultimate thing is, will you go beyond the evidence and say, because there is a God, I choose to believe, to put my faith and trust in you, to, to believe in a God who is bigger than me, and to acknowledge that God, I've, 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 yeah, I'm 
of sin by being in charge and, and wanting to, to make you do what I want to do. And God, I ask you to forgive me and forgive me through Jesus, my faith in Jesus. And, and I give you the right to be the word and leader of my life and then to start to figure out what that's going to look like going forward. I make the choice to believe. And there might be some where you've done that in the past, and, but you've wandered away because, well, God didn't perform and God, I can't trust God. Again, there's a, there's, it's not just a battle of your belief right now, your mind. It's a battle of your will. You're struggling with God because you're demanding, God, you have to do what I expect you to do or else I just can't be close to you. Do you think that God might know more than you do? To have a relationship with God, does God have to conform to us? Or does it mean that we acknowledge that he's God and that we allow ourselves, him to be bigger than us? And, and we know we not always understand it, but... He calls us to conform to him. Friends, there may be some here that, again, you don't have that relationship or you have it and you've wandered away and today might be the day that God says, okay, I want to heal that. Today's the day that you come and you say, God, I want that belief and help me to, to take not only what I know but to now translate it into an act of the will. I ask you to forgive me through Jesus Christ. I want to be a follower of Jesus. There might be others where it's like, oh, I've wandered away and God, I've been mad at you because you haven't done what I expected. God, I agree with you that, man, I'm demanding that you submit to me. That's the, it's the problem with me in my heart. I'm, I'm like these religious leaders. And today might be the day to say, God, I surrender to you. I don't understand, but I come and I bring myself and who I am. And God, I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal where there's scars. God, help me to believe who you are, not as a God who conforms to me, but a God who calls me to conform to you and your truth, which is always good. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.